A reading from Romans 3, 9 through 26. Listen for what God is saying to you. So what are we saying? Are we better off? Not at all. We have already stated the charge. Both Jews and Greeks are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who looks for God. They are all turned away. They have become worthless together. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throat is a grave that has been opened. They are deceitful with their tongues, and the poison of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and they don't know the way of peace. There is no fear of God in their view of the world. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, in order to shut every mouth and make it so the whole world has to answer to God. It follows that no human being will be treated as righteous in his presence by doing what the law says, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, which is confirmed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but all are treated as righteous, freely by his grace, because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. Through his faithfulness, God displayed Jesus as the place of sacrifice where mercy is found by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness in passing over sins that happened before during the time of God's patient tolerance. He also did this to demonstrate that he is righteous in the present time and to treat the one who has faith in Jesus as righteous. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of this scripture. It's appropriate that a, a sermon that will be about sin would be accompanied by uh, cries, anguish, cries of anguish um, in the background. So, <laughs> but hopefully they'll stop. Um, let us pray. God, thank you so much for um, gathering us here this morning uh, to delve into your word, to um, explore a little bit more about who you are and who you can be in our lives. Open our hearts and our minds to hear and receive what that is. Um, today, and may it help us to leave this place not just transformed, but inspired and motivated to live it out in a new way. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I forgot to share that we are in this new sermon series, <laughs> Road Trip Through Romans. Um, you probably gathered that based on the slide, but um, part of the reason why we're calling it a road trip through Romans is that the Romans road... It's a common series of scripture that evangelists walk folks down as a way of converting them to Christianity. You may be um, from that tradition, actually. And while that's not exactly our style at UBC, these verses are important for laying out some of the earliest methods for understanding how to think about things like sin and salvation and the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we thought, it's summer. Let's take a road trip. So last week I talked about how for Paul, faith is more than an intellectual exercise or a feeling in your heart and your spirit, right? That it's an embodied way of living what you believe. 
This thread of embodied faith runs all the way through the book of Romans. And funny enough, though, in our passage for today, the bottom, of line, bottom line of what Paul is trying to say this week is that while embodied faith is actually core to the life of faith, it actually doesn't make much of a difference when it comes to how God sees us. Leading up for our, to our passage today, the Apostle Paul is kind of laying out what's wrong with the world. And the problem with the world can be summed up in this one word, sin, right? Paul says there are two kinds of people in the world, and so sort of two streams of sin in a way. Um, there's the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, and then the Jews. And for Gentiles, he says, they have no way of governing themselves except through empire. empire. And the purpose of empire is domination and power. So whatever gets you higher, whatever gains you more power, whatever gives you greater dominance, that's what Gentiles were oriented toward. In chapter 1, Paul lays out this long list of sexual practices and evil corruption practices, stuff in ways that folks are doing wrong. And by the end of the list, you know the Jews, especially the ones who are super hardcore about the law. The ones who are hearing him are probably all doing like the slow head shake in unison saying, yeah, those Gentiles, they're all messed up. But for the Jews, um, they had this thing called the Torah. And the Torah, which is translated as the law, was the order of life together that Jewish folks had sketched out with God. Things like, void all debts every seven years. Be faithful to your spouse. Don't steal or kill. Put the toilet seat down. Basically, stuff to help them not only live well together, but also live well with God, because God likes the toilet seat down, right? And the intention of all of these laws was to ultimately move folks towards wholeness of life, or shalom. And so, in a sense, the Jews were better. They weren't as ratchet as the Gentiles, right? But it didn't mean that they were actually technically better, in, that they were actually better. In, in chapter 2, Paul is like, and for the rest of y'all, the Jews, but if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you brag about your relationship to God, if you know the will of God, if you are taught by the law so that you can figure out the things that really matter, if you have persuaded yourself that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an educator of the foolish, a teacher of infants, since you have the full content of knowledge and truth in the law, then why don't you who are teaching others teach yourself? Yeesh. Remember a while back how I was saying that sometimes siblings are uh, meaner to you than people outside of your family? Case in point right here, right? These are Paul's people. When he's talking about them, he's talking about himself. And the whole point that he's trying to make is this. We are all in the same toilet bowl. We are all hanging out in the same toilet bowl. And just because the Gentiles are swimming next to a couple of floaters doesn't mean you're in that great of a situation, right? We may think that we're better because we're not as bad as those guys over there, but the reality is that we're all really bad at doing life in ways that allow everyone to flourish. Just like the law of empire and the Jewish law, sin is about how we are in relationship, how we're uh, in relationship with one another and how we're in relationship with God. And so for the Jews in the Torah, God is Yahweh, but for empire, God is Caesar. So, in relationship with God. Sin is relational before it is ever behavioral. You see in verses 11 and 12, there is no one who understands, there's no one who looks for God. They all turn away. There is not even one. If you think about any relationship in your life, and you think about some kind of jerky thing that you may have done to the other person, your behavior was probably preceded by a relational break. 
So whether you lied to someone or took something from someone or talked smack about someone, there was some relational thing that happened before you actually acted out, right? Some kind of break in the relationship that made you feel okay or even want to do something even though you knew it would hurt the relationship. The act of sin is preceded by something that's already going on inside of you. So these verses, they're relational. There's no one who seeks God, and they're all, but they're also directional. They all turn away. It's about your aim. It's about where you're going. At its root, sin is not so much about whether you're doing bad things or doing good things. It's mostly about what's behind all you're doing and where it's leading you. Does that make sense? And there are two kind, primary kind of types of sin. There's personal sin and there's corporate sin. Personal sin. Okay, so personal sin is like this past Tuesday was the first gathering um, of our starting point small group. And we had a great discussion about grace. One person shared about how they were taught that grace was tied to their behavior, right? So like if they were doing right, then they must, uh, then they would get more of God's grace. If they were doing, if things were going wrong in their life, then they must have done something to deserve it. Whether people voice it or not, I think that this is a pretty common understanding of grace. For a lot of folks, the instinct is that there is an ideal life, right, a good life, and that's the kind of life I should try to live. And so conversely, there's also this bad life, and I should try to avoid that life. I should reject that life. I have to stop the bad things and do the good things, and when I do that, God will bless me. It's a transactional way of looking at it, which makes sense in our capitalistic transaction-oriented culture. I give you this, and you give me that, right? But here's the catch. When you think this way, here's the thing. When you think this way, what direction is your action really going? Think about it. If your understanding or reason for why you do good things or why you try to be obedient to God is so that you'll get a blessing from God or you'll be in good standing with God, who are you doing these things for ultimately? You. Ultimately, your good behavior is actually about you. If I give up this, God, you'll give me that. Or if I take this on, if I'm very, very good and obedient, if I obey the Bible and do everything I can to be like Jesus, then Jesus, then God will bless me. Then God has to bless me. Do you hear it? God has to bless me. You may be living sacrificially. You may be a super Christian. But if you're doing it so that then God owes you something or God will respond the way you want, you're ultimately doing it for yourself. And you're also kind of, in a way, trying to control God, right? Sin wants you to be your own savior. And it will twist God to fit within that so that your behavior, your being good or obedient or whatever, will in a way end up controlling God. Sin makes it so that everything we do, we don't do it for God, but we do it for ourselves. The direction of my spirit, the direction of my actions, they go away from God to me. That's what sin does to our good intentions. And when our personal sin, when our individual sin is empowered and multiplied through bodies or through money or through force, it begins to take on a much bigger, much more widespread consequence. An example of this is systemic racism. One of the very simple ways I describe systemic racism to people is this, this simple equation. Race prejudice plus power equals racism. Many good-hearted individual people would be offended 
if they were called racist or told that they were acting in racist ways, right? But here's the thing. Systemic racism is much, much bigger than one person's act. It's even bigger than a group of people's acts. Systemic racism is a generations-long movement that is the result of intentional and even sometimes unintentional decisions that have compounded one upon the other to create a world and a society where some people receive more opportunity, more privileges, access to more power than others. The direction of people's collective spirit, the direction of their actions, go away from God towards us, the, the ones who are working um, out of that place of power, right? It started out with acts and decisions of individuals. And then it became the acts and decisions of a community. And then those decisions and actions grew even larger, larger than the community itself. Is this, is this making sense? Remember how I talked last week about how when we come together in worship and fellowship, something greater than us happens, right? I use this equation a lot. One plus one equals three when we get together, right? Well, guess what? When it comes to sin, it's the same thing, but in the opposite direction. One plus one also equals three when people collectively make decisions that are about them and not about God's vision. And like systemic racism, the bigger spirit that is born out of those collective acts begins to take on a life of its own. So there is a spirit of UVC, right? And it's bigger than us, but it only happens when we come together. And it has a, a, this life-giving force, right, that people talk about a lot. Well, it's the same thing, only in a different situation when it comes to sin. So this leads to the second form of sin that Paul talks about, corporate or communal sin. And the way he talks about sin here in this letter to the Roman church and kind of throughout all of his letters, um, the way he talks about it is often not just human individual acts, but something much bigger, this and th this plus three, right? One plus one equals three kind of thing. Sometimes he calls them powers and principalities. Powers and principalities. For Paul, sin takes on a spirit and life of its own. And the way Paul talks about it is really similar to the way, what some folks might call Satan, right? There's a kind of personhood, a kind of being that collective sin becomes. Even if it started with an individual, when it catches on, it multiplies and begins to exercise power, power over the communities that the people are in them um, are, are made of. It becomes a power that is bigger than us. Have you ever felt defeated by widespread poverty or war or economic injustice? These are things that have grown out of individual and then communal decisions to protect resources or interests of some over the dignity and value of others. And the thing about communal sin is that it's no one's fault, right? It's, it's no one's fault. And it's everyone's fault. <laughs> it's the combined effects of institutions and personal decisions and collective assent. Let's say that again. The combined effects of institutions like schools, churches, hospitals, law enforcement agencies, social security, institutions, personal decisions, and collective assent, that we all go along with it, right? So many of you know that we've been involved with supporting the efforts to open up a trauma center here on the south side. And Tweet talked about that earlier. At this time, there are no adult level one trauma centers on the south side, but there are seven adult trauma centers north of the loop. The closest hospital 
as Tweek said, that someone can go to if they have been in a serious car accident or the victim of a violent act is Northwestern Hospital in the Loop or uh, Christ Church in Oakland. And with serious injuries, as we know, every passing minute it takes to get to medical care has a decreased chance of survival. Dr. Marie Crandall of Northwestern Hospital shared how when she was a surgical resident at Sturger Hospital, which is a county hospital, um, she was often operating on victims of violence who had been scooped off street corners on the west side or the south side and brought into the hospital within minutes. And when she moved to Northwestern, she noticed pretty quickly that the victims of violence who came in rarely survived. And so she looked back through like 11 years of data and she found that people who are shot more than, five, more than five miles from a trauma center, what she calls trauma deserts, so they don't live within a five mile radius of a trauma center, were 23% likelier to die. So that means, okay, so if you are in a serious car accident, so serious that your chances of surviving are 60%, right? Minus 23%, right? Minus 23%. On this map, essentially everyone who is south of 35th Street and east of the Dan Ryan have a 23% less likelihood of surviving a trauma. But as you know, we have too many people getting shot and too many people dying on our streets. And it would be easy to say, well, it's not up to the UFC, right? It's not up to the UFC to fix that. And you're right. It would be easy to say it's the cycles of poverty. It's the education system. All my teachers are like, wait a second. It's the unemployment. It's the racism. And I would say, yes, 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 and yes. It's everyone's fault. And it's no one's fault. It's too big. It's too hard. It costs too much. And it's way too complicated. When you start hearing that, when you start feeling like that, that is your first clue that you are dealing with corporate sin right there, communal sin. It's everyone's fault and it's no one's fault. It's the combined effects of institutions, personal decisions, and collective assent. That's communal sin. So then what do we do? What do we do when we realize we, that we are participating in this communal sin? Or sin in general, so personal or communal, take your pick. Paul has an idea, because he always has an idea. Step one, shut your mouth. Now, when, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Shut your mouth. When we are talking about personal sin or communal sin, step one is stop talking. Stop making excuses. Stop apologizing profusely or beating yourself up. Just stop. Stop. Stop your mouth. Here, Paul is referring to a practice in court when the defendant is required to stop talking once they've been determined to be guilty. They have to stop defending themselves. Wait, 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 let me just stop. Sometimes the court would actually hit them in the mouth to get them to stop talking. Once you realize that you've screwed up, once you realize that you are participating in sin in some way, just shut your mouth and get ready to do your work. In the conversations that folks have had with the leadership of the UFC, there have been lots of excuses and explanations. There are lots of hospitals on the south side. Why us? 
we, we just really think it's the wrong thing for us to be getting into. We're a research hospital. We are studying rare diseases and specializing in this or that. Why are you picking on us? This is a much, much uh, larger trauma healthcare issue. It's beyond us. Yes, yes. It's all true. It's all true. But remember what I said earlier about how sin is relational before it's behavioral? What's behind all those decisions? Where is their relationship? Certainly not with Hadia Pendleton, right? The honorable student who was shot at a park on 42nd Street just two weeks after returning from President Obama's second inauguration. Where is their relationship? Not with Damian Turner, a Kenwood Academy student who started Fearless Leading by the Youth, who now is continuing his work. Their mouths are open graves. Their tongues craft sharp lies. Their feet are quick to shed blood and destruction and misery because it doesn't affect them. It's not part of their reality. They may work on the South Side, but where do you think they live? They may work on the South Side, but they don't necessarily live here. And so here's what we're trying to do. Here's what the Trauma Center Coalition is trying to tell our decision-maker friends at the university hospital system. Just stop it. Just shut your mouth. Shut your mouth and open your heart. Open your heart. And now, lest we start shaking our heads in slow motion at the university hospital folks, those people, let's just remember that we're all in the same toilet bowl, right? So shut your mouth and open your heart. Open your heart to receive the vision of a better world. Still, still your words and sit in silence. Catch a glimpse of what God is trying to do, what God is trying to do within you and through you. But God can't do any of that if you don't stop denying that there's a problem, right? If you don't stop denying that you have any part in it, whatever it may be. If you don't drop the shovel that you have put to such good use in digging a beautiful hole for yourself, just Shut your mouth, drop your shovel, and look. Just look at God. Look at God. Look at God. Look at Jesus. This life, this world is not about these excuses. It's not about you saving face or looking good, either as an individual or as an institution. It's hard, right? It's hard to admit that. It's not about being the best and the brightest and the most successful and the most powerful. Those are all perverted versions of what life, the kind of life that God designed us for. God designed us to thrive with life, all of us, not just some of us at the expense of others. God designed us for joy and for strength to lift ourselves and others up. God designed us for mutual sacrifice, mutual outpouring, mutual investment, not so that we could be a bunch of doormats, but so that we can know deep love, deep reconciliation, deep community, and deep, deep wholeness. And because God knows that we just, just can't help ourselves, right? That no matter what we do, we just can't seem to get away from ourselves long enough to really pursue God because at some point, our doing good ends up coming back here, right? So God made a decision. Through Jesus Christ, God decided to pursue us. Because we couldn't pursue God. God decided to pursue us. 
And Jesus, a fully human person who was capable of making his own decisions, decided also to believe and buy into this vision of wholeness of life. Wholeness of life for all. And Paul says, because of Jesus' faithfulness, because of Jesus' embodied faithfulness, because of Jesus' faithfulness, we have a shot at making this work. We have a shot of getting outside of ourselves if we would just allow ourselves to not just be pursued by God, but also caught by God and caught up. If we allowed ourselves to stand and consider who God is and how God is and what might be possible with God, if we actually opened ourselves up to be transformed, to be used, if we would allow ourselves to do that, We've got a shot. We've got a way out of this hole we've dug ourselves into. We've got a way out of sin. Let us pray. God, we hand you our shovel. We sit with our mouths stilled, ready to stop making excuses, ready to to stop making ourselves look good or at least feel better about ourselves, we stand ready and open to you, to being caught by you. You don't have to pursue us anymore, God, because we want ourselves to be caught. Do with us what needs to be done so that this world might know your vision of wholeness of life for all. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.